Listeners are advised that the names used in the following case study have been changed to protect real-life persons. No identification with actual persons, living or deceased, should be inferred. This is the story of two founders, trust, a company and a crime, with one employee at the heart of it all. We'll call them Employee X. 20 years ago, Jill and Adam founded a consultancy firm. They had little infrastructure and a modest portfolio. What they did have was a small but carefully selected team of employees, one of which was Employee X, their chief financial controller. For years, the team worked closely, humbly growing the business. They knew each other intimately, attending important life events like weddings and birthdays. All employees were trusted implicitly. The business operations were fully transparent. Employee X had access to everything. Over the years, the business grew substantially and successfully. What was once a team of just four people, including Jill and Adam, was now a team of 106. And in the 20 years it took to grow to this size, the core group of early employees remained, Employee X still at the helm of company finance, though now with a considerably larger salary. However, as is not uncommon for a business transitioning in size, issues started to arise. And in April of the year 2020, issues became substantial problems. Jill and Adam were seeing deficits, but struggling to understand the funding arrangements in place. Trusting their core staff, they hadn't put any authorisation controls in place. As COVID-19 swept the globe and the pandemic sent businesses into insolvency all around them, our founders began to turn over every stone looking at their business closer than ever before to try and save it. Looking closely, they started to see a pattern, a pattern of unusual losses and obtuse financial arrangements. Against their better personal judgment, they began to suspect employee X. Who else had access to it all? They were hesitant to point fingers at their friend and hesitant to introduce harsher controls, lest it look like they had lost trust. In a desperate bid to survive the great economic winter of the pandemic, they finally engaged forensic services and eventually the police. Their worst fears were confirmed. Their long-time employee and friend had been maliciously taking funds from the company for years to the tune of millions of dollars. The reason, as it came out, was a feeling of resentment. While the founders' financial portfolios grew with the business, Employee X could only look forward to salary bumps. Employee X felt they were just as responsible for the company's growth and started paying themselves additional sums with company funds. They are a colleague and friend no longer. They now have a criminal record and Jill and Adam's business trust has been permanently destroyed. Of course, that's very difficult to then go from complete trust in somebody to reporting them to the police and then having legal action, criminal action taken against them. That's Stan Gallo. He's a partner with BDO's Forensic Services. Stan oversees technology and investigations. 
Uh, I'm a former detective with the Queensland Police Service and uh, that evolved through development of an understanding around electronic evidence and how that can play a role in legal proceedings through to a consultancy career and I'm now a court-recognised expert in relation to the analysis of electronic evidence. Yeah, that will be really hard to follow because I'm not an ex-detective. That's Quinn Reinders. I'm an executive director in BDO Forensic Services team. During my years in forensic, uh, I've worked on forensic accounting investigations as well as forensic data analytic investigations and forensic technology investigations. Fraud has always been committed. Fraud's always been part of us and it will always be there. And there's always going to be these smart crooks that will find a way to defraud. You're listening to In Business with BDO. Welcome to In Business with BDO, where we bring the experts to you to share their insights on the top issues and topics impacting organisations and finance-related issues affecting individuals in Australia today. I'm your host, Jennifer Mary, and in this episode, we're moving into the shadows to explore workplace fraud. Employee X is a very real person and fraud a very real threat. But our experts, Stan and Quinn, have lived long professional lives in forensics. They know the signs, the psychology, and they know what to do if it happens in your business. In a post-COVID world, the threat of fraud takes new and malicious shapes. But as we've heard from Quinn already, fraud has always been committed. I'm from the Netherlands, you might pick up an accent, and I believe in the 17th century over there, it already started, there was big turmoil around tulips and the valuation of those flowers. A bit later, the double-entry bookkeeping came into fashion, and in the absence of any of the modern-day regulations, uh, there were quite a few balance sheets that were completely uh, fraudulent. Right now, the world is very global and everything's connected and information is accessible. Back in those days, uh, it absolutely wasn't. So when I uh, was first trained as an auditor, we always used to really enjoy those olden days case studies. But I guess it illustrates my point that fraud's always been part of us, probably long, long before the cases I just mentioned, and it will always be there. I found it really helpful to think, well, what is the definition of fraud? It's, you know, to intentionally deceive and that's been around as long as people have been around. Mm. The, the profile certainly has evolved, as Quinn mentioned, the, as business has grown and technology's become integrated with almost everything we do, then the nature of the fraud has certainly evolved. And you can imagine from, from fudging the pricing of tulips right through to cyber fraud or, or indeed modification of invoices and, and falsification of files, electronic funds transfer to banking organisations. The underlying fraud issue's always been present, but it's grown and evolved along with business and, and the rest of the world as we've moved forward. At its core, in terms of the modern workplace, fraud is still financial, whether you whether you're actually it's the theft of money or whether it's the theft of data which is then monetized whether it's a a ransomware encryption attack and then a a ransom is requested or extracted from the company all of those it's it's about monetizing that that issue that at its core and that hasn't changed from back in the the early centuries to now it's still about a malicious extraction of funds uh, and financial benefit for the for the attacker or for the fraudster in that case study, 
when the company was small, they wanted to trust one another. And the default, I think, for humans is to trust. And we, I don't think society would function very well if we couldn't take people on face value. And so the idea of having a fraudulent employee in our team, in my team, seems really foreign, that it's actually more common than people think, isn't it? Essentially, the idea of, of having a fraudster in within a team is foreign because people are trusting by nature. And despite all the issues we see on a day-to-day basis in the fraud space, people are still trusting by nature. And I think that the idea that someone would abuse that trust strikes at the heart of who we are as, as human beings. However, it, it is common, and I think it's in part driven by a whole range of needs and whether it's greed, whether it's financial hardship, there's some sort of justification for it. But the idea that you could live and work with one of these people who will commit fraud on a day-to-day basis still seems foreign, even when they find out about it. And often businesses lose good team members because of a fraud, because they struggle with this idea of, I work with this person on a day-to-day basis, and I had no idea that they were doing these things. And some of the simple things that they might have raised, can I use your computer or can you print that for me or can you unlock this PDF file, is being then systematically misused and, and they punish themselves for not having noticed it. Or I did think it was a bit off, but I dismissed that because I know they're a good person or, you know, i play footy with them on the weekend or whatever it may be. So that strikes at the heart of trust and uh, it, it can really damage a person emotionally and they, they often the good ones leave the organisation as a result. It's unfortunate, but that's part of the issue is that fraudsters do take advantage of that trust of their colleagues. On the flip side, it is interesting that some people will condone behaviour to a certain level. So if you think about you know, somebody tucks a ream of copying paper under their arm and takes it home because they need it for the printer or whatever, and people would look at that and go, well, that's, that's nothing. When in actual fact, if you come down to nuts and bolts, it's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. So people will kind of have a level where they go, well, that's okay, but I wouldn't steal money. Or, yeah, look, you know, we're using the petty cash tin to buy coffee for the team. That's okay. We're not supposed to really do it, but that's okay because it's not really – you know, it's nothing serious, but I would never steal a thousand dollars from the firm. Or and then, it, you know, it rapidly evolves to, well, this is, you know, I'm I'm claiming because I use my car to drive around, and instead of claiming mileage, I'll just take the money from that, and I'm just reimbursing myself because that's okay. But I would never take ten thousand dollars from the firm, and 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 so on and so on it goes until before you know it, you know, you you find out that somebody in the team is is as in the example previously, somebody stripping millions of dollars over time and, and it becomes ingrained. And that will have ripple effects throughout the entire organisation. Is it more common in, uh, fraud's more common in larger organisations where there isn't the closeness and those relationships where people trust one another? I'm not sure if, if it's bound to the size of an organisation because I think both larger and smaller organisations have advantages and disadvantages from a fraud perspective. In a smaller organisation, like in the case study, there's often a lack of formal controls providing opportunity for for fraudsters to take advantage. And in a larger organization, it can definitely be sort of more the rationalization factor, the the care factor that they feel that either no one's going to notice, it doesn't matter, it's what they deserve, they didn't get a pay rise and 
kind of the familiar ones that you read in these typical fraud cases. And it's not to say that in bigger organizations, control environments are always perfect. I always think back to the Société Générale case, which was a, a really famous one over in Europe, a French bank. And there was a fraudster who also took astronomical amounts of money there because they'd been with the company for a long time and held many different roles in that time. And as a result, a lot of access to systems that should have been revoked wasn't. So even though there were kind of theoretical controls in place, this person could pretty much circumvent all of them because they had all this system access that they shouldn't have had from previous roles. So it doesn't, like a big bank, can definitely easily be a victim. I've seen plenty of examples. So I don't necessarily think you can say it's more prevalent in larger or smaller organizations, unless, Stan, you've got a different view. No, no, I tend to agree. I think larger organizations, as you say, have embedded controls because they they have the scale that allows for an additional focus on proactive controls and detective controls uh, around fraud. But it's difficult because in a lot of cases for larger organizations, they will exit the employee after the fraud's discovered. And in many cases, they don't want to report it to law enforcement because of the potential negative publicity, et cetera. So that person then moves out of that organization and resurfaces to commit fraud somewhere else. Whereas in the smaller organization, the same fraud has a much greater impact. So, you know, if you if you pick a number and say it's a million dollars for a large organization, that impact is far less than, a, you know, a middle size or a small organization with that same million dollars. So, you know, that can bring the organization to its knees if it's at the wrong time. So they tend to react differently and it'll be a stronger, oh, we want to report it, the controls weren't there, but. They, they tend to react more harshly because it'll be the difference between success and failure of the business, potentially. The larger ones may tend to report less. So on that basis, we would have more publicity around smaller frauds, as in uh, smaller business frauds, not necessarily smaller by volume in terms of dollar. But I don't know that you could really cast it one way or the other. I think it's a common problem across business period. Just a very common in family businesses uh, that trust is, is a control and then they don't want to step back from that because they feel that the employees will suddenly turn around and go, well, you know, you've trusted me all this time. Now suddenly you don't and you want a second signatory on the bank account. And, and I could probably even go a step further in that I've investigated a fair few cases where trust actually wasn't a control. It was creating blind spots because specifically if, if the fraudster is pretty charismatic, that trust is, is completely used against the rest of the people, like people in finance roles that really given their training should pick certain things up. Like uh, an example, if, if the head of finance gives them a post-it note and just says, make this urgent payment immediately to this party. I know they're not in our master file, but I just want you to make it straight away because it's urgent and important. And they just do it because they trust this person blindly. And when you remind them of their responsibility later, they know it was wrong, but it didn't even come up in their minds because they trust the person blindly. So I would go further and say, in my professional view, it, it can never be a control. The case of Employee X and more recently in the news, the case of um, Melissa Caddick, 
They seem, you know, sensational and pretty far away from anything that your eye might experience. But what are the most common acts of fraud in the modern workplace? At the moment, if we talk about the modern workplace in, in, in terms of this last year, say, where we've pivoted to a work-from-home environment or a flexible working arrangement on the back of the pandemic and this new norm, there's an issue arising around inflated productivity. So there's a, a dare I say it, a trust, that people are working from home but working the same way as they would in the office. And those are a couple of key issues. And, and to address them, businesses are looking at productivity measurements as opposed to hours. So regardless of how many hours you work, it's about getting things done and how productive you are. And in many cases, it's been argued that people are more productive working from home because they can focus on what they're doing and they get in and get it done. The commute's gone, so they, they just head down and start working early and they tend to work longer hours in some cases. I don't think we'll ever go back to the office five days a week if I listen to the people around me. So it does mean that, like Stan's right, businesses weren't ready a year ago when COVID hit so suddenly, but there needs to be a beefing up of those technical controls. And I think it will be a really interesting debate, but how much of that is around sort of more of a soft control environment and how much of that is around IT technical monitoring sort of transactions or events that flow over over the technological systems. So that will be really interesting to watch, but there needs to be a shift. It can't just go back to 2019 because that era has gone. False invoicing is still an issue. And in terms of a flexible work environment, that whether it's manipulated by an external party, so a, a a cyber type business email compromise cyber attack or something like that where invoices are redirected to the bank account details are changed for example or whether it's an employee setting up a false vendor or something like that that remains an issue and and the new work environment or the modern work environment opens the doors for that contracts and conflicts of interest is another type of fraud seen most commonly in the workplace you know you're putting on people and businesses are are being forced to respond quickly in the modern work environment in order to to maintain their existence at this part. Over the last year, there's been a lot of businesses that have gone to the wall on the back of COVID and, and the lockdowns. So businesses are trying to take advantage of every opportunity to pull revenue in and just survive, let alone prosper. So that opens the door for fraudsters to take advantage of that situation and leverage the benefit to themselves. So if I can recommend we need some work done, I can recommend a company. I just happen to neglect that it's owned by my wife or my second cousin or whatever it is and that that I get a payment direct from them for nominating them and the company accepts the work because it's a revenue opportunity, you know, something like that. We're, we're more prone to overlook some of those rules because we're desperate at the moment. For reasons of privacy and surveillance, data and data theft is a very hot topic right now. And according to Stan, in the case of workplace fraud, data theft is also very prevalent, happening both externally and internally. So internally, it tends to be people moving from one organisation to another. So they take copies of data with them, whether it's uh, you know sensitive intellectual property, so it could be a design or uh, something for you know manufacturing or creation of something, or it could be you know contact lists and client lists. Externally, it could be external attackers that are, are stealing information, identities, sensitive information to package and resell. 
ransomware, all those sorts of things. Stan describes the current economic and social environment as a once-in-a-generation opportunity for external attackers. It is a unique set of circumstances, almost a perfect storm. You've got people who are craving information around COVID and the pandemic, and, and now we've moved to the vaccine rollout and what that looks like. So people are actively seeking this information and external attackers are starting to feed that with phishing emails and with links, et cetera, that are tailored to the government's initiatives. So the job keeper or job seeker allowances, payments, the the um, early access to super as an example. So the the attackers can see that and you've got people that are working from home because they had to or, or they've pivoted on, as, on the back of the pandemic. IT controls haven't quite caught up in many cases. And then you've got the attackers coming in saying, look, here's an email in relation to the new vaccine rollout. This is how you can get early access. Yeah, there's been a lot of exploiting going on, actually. This story brought back a memory of when COVID first hit. I literally never had so many phone calls with the intent to defraud as then. And I've been thinking about why. Why was I targeted by all these phishing? It's phishing with a V. These fraudsters that were trying to get something from me over the phone. And the only thing I can think of is I recently got my PR. So I must have been on a list somewhere as someone kind of seeking residency. Uh, With me, obviously, there's many, many, many people going through that process. And somehow, maybe a list like that would have leaked, I imagine. And um, yeah, you you get all sorts of calls about, you know, the ATO and there's issues with your tax because, you know, you're not a citizen. Um, You get calls from the Department of Home Affairs. And it was all sorts of these government organizations trying to say that there was an investigation launched against me and, and then obviously trying to get me to somehow divulge uh, personal information on that phone call that, like Stan said, then would be monetized later by the baddies. So who are these baddies? What is the most common profile of a white-collar fraudster? It's hard not to ask the question. Over the years that I've worked in forensic, we always used to do this research and and look for, you know, what's the typical fraudster profile and come up with, you know, the typical white male executive. And then, yeah, we'd write articles about that. And like retrospectively, I think it's probably because we would look at our biggest cases and without being trying to be politically correct here, if you consider what type of roles uh, that profile would hold, it would be like the higher up executive roles at at bigger companies where there's more uh, money up for grabs with larger financial delegations and, yeah, probably also bigger investigations budgets. So I guess that's, that's kind of what we came to just looking at the official caseloads. But as we discussed earlier, uh, that's not necessarily the case. And uh, just taking a broader look at all the various cases that have come across my desk in the last sort of 15 years, it's definitely a mixture of old, young, male, female ethnicities. I wouldn't really say you can sort of profile the fraudster too much, luckily, because, yeah, that would open up a can of worms in terms of a very politically incorrect uh, debate. Under the right circumstances, people's resolve gets tested. So whatever that driver is, and it it could be pure greed, it it could be gambling addiction, it could be financial pressure, it could be a, a sick child. So under the right set of circumstances, anybody can be a fraudster. They really can. 
We mentioned Melissa Caddick earlier. Her recent high-profile fraud case and subsequent disappearance and death is, in 2021, at the forefront of Australians' minds when we think about fraud. You might ask how Melissa fit into the fraudster profile. By all accounts, based on the media reports around that, Melissa was a, a charismatic individual who targeted friends and family as, as well as acquaintances. So there's that trust issue coming into play there. She was charismatic and projected an image of success that people bought into. And that was enough to override any concerns that the returns she was promising were too good to be true when you look at them in the cold light of day. So I think uh, this particular example with this particular scheme, so Melissa with the Ponzi scheme, is a really nice illustration that usually like it can be everyone. Everyone can be a fraudster, but uh, the successful ones are usually really good at, at like social engineering, manipulation, very often charismatic people. So they, they really maximize that kind of skill set to make people believe their story and make people trust them because they leverage that trust. That's probably the generic, the common denominator. So if you suspect illegal activity in the workplace, what process should you follow? I suppose it's really important to not start and become your own detective. Uh, That's one of the first things we like to say to clients that call us with a potential issue. Uh, You can really do a lot of damage if you start to look at evidence yourself and start to potentially question people. So with looking at evidence, you, you can damage your chain of custody, which means that if your matter would ever go to court or be investigated by law enforcement and uh, it becomes known that the evidence is no longer in its original uh, shape, then it is inadmissible and that really can damage your case if you do want to pursue it. And then obviously by carefully choosing the timing of when and how you interview people, you get a lot more information and better results in your investigation rather than if you rush off and and pull the person into a room and go in there unprepared without thinking about who needs to be in that room, etc. So I think it's really important if you suspect something to take a step back, think about things and get someone in who, who does this professionally. Is it necessary to call in law enforcement? Like, is that a legal requirement with certain types of fraud or levels of fraud? In Australia, uh, it differs in different states and territories. In some, there's no legal requirement to call in law enforcement at all. And and in others, there is a mandated requirement to report it. So it it really depends on the state that the organisation is in as to what that is. I mean, generally, I I would advocate that that law enforcement should be involved um, regardless, but in terms of a legal requirement, it depends either way. The stage at which you call law enforcement can have a significant effect and and, uh, it's not being disparaging to law enforcement themselves as an ex-police officer myself. It's more about the nature of fraud as an offence is quite difficult to investigate and, and often requires some expertise, whether it's accounting skills, forensic technology skills, etc. And and whilst the police have access to those, as does BDO, the priority for law enforcement is different because, you know, they'll have homicides and child-related offences and other things that will, will naturally take priority as, as it should. 
So for us, we find it's far more effective to be able to identify the evidence. And, and as Quinn mentioned, that locking it down appropriately can be the difference between success and failure, particularly with electronic evidence, which is volatile by nature. It can be destroyed easily. So being able to to appropriately have the right expertise to lock that down and consider it, find out the facts that you can. Um, you do have some some authority within the organisation to interview staff, for example. Then that that can help tie up the details, the facts as to what the fraud is, and then at that time you can make a decision about you know do we get law enforcement in or indeed if we have to one way or the other and then hand them something that's far more complete and then they can look at it and go, okay, well, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting's already been done so we can tie up the brief and charge the person and, and take control of the legal process. As far as mitigating fraud in your workplace goes, there are hard controls, as Stan and Quinn have highlighted. But the culture of your business, or what they call soft controls, can also be hugely significant. The culture can really catch a lot of bad behaviour and can also facilitate that comfort for people to do speak up if they see something that's wrong. So there are a couple of questions that organisations can ask themselves that come very clearly out of research all over the world. And uh, there are questions such as, are the rules in the policies and procedures clear for employees or are they confusing? And can they be executed or are there too many barriers or is it impossible to follow them? And if someone has an ethical dilemma, can they discuss it internally or do they get weird looks if they try that? And it's unethical behaviour that they see in a, in a fellow employee or in one of their bosses is it, is it possible to be discussed? So as opposed to an ethical dilemma, the unethical behavior cannot actually be discussed. In, in best practice organizations, you can. And there's certainly programs you can put in place to encourage that. And one of the very important things is what's the tone at the top like at the organization? Is the CEO, the executive, the, the leaders of the organization, what do they do on a day-to-day basis? How do they work together? Do they just talk about the values or do they actually live them and embody them in, in everything that they do? And how transparent is behavior at the organization? It, I mean, is it pretty clear what everyone's doing all the time? Are people being monitored? Uh, and is there a good balance? Because too much monitoring can also lead to yeah, disenfranchised employees uh, if they feel they're being watched all the time and not trusted. So it's another balance to maintain. And then finally, and one of the really important cornerstones of, of culture is if there are rules that are important, that are set, are they enforced and are there penalties? Because if bad behavior is tolerated all the time, you may as well not have the policies. It's possibly worse than having no policies. So those are some of the factors to consider. So what does BDO see as the white-collar fraud challenges in the post-COVID environment? The changes brought about by the pandemic, as mentioned earlier, that some of those will be long-term. Some of those changes will be embedded in the workplaces as we go forward. The continued evolution of technology as businesses start to move into recovery mode coming out of the pandemic, we're going to see the importance of maintaining a balance between trust in the employees who are still 
in that mobile workforce environment versus increased controls driven by more effective technology and enhanced processes. And organisations will need to really consider the high-risk areas and then look at the controls in that specifically as opposed to taking a more generalist view. They need to be practical about it. You you can't lock down everything and and make life impossible for your staff to actually achieve what it is you're paying them to achieve. So there needs to be a balance. So I, I think it'll be a matter of trying to reassess your business, reassess the new work environment and see where the high risks are when you overlap the two and then focus on those. We are moving into an era of empathetic leadership. I hear it all around me. Uh, I think it is really leadership keeping up with the times. Uh, I guess the times of authoritative, distant, hierarchic type executive teams and bosses are starting to fade away. And I think that empathetic leadership will be a key in making the new way of working work. One thing that will certainly happen is people won't be around all the time anymore. So there will need to be more of a concerted effort from executives to connect with their staff, to empathize with them, to make contact with them, because they won't necessarily run into them at at the coffee machine or at the water cooler. So post-COVID, even though it sounds very soft and far removed from stealing money, I think executives that are really successful in embodying and embedding that type of attitude and culture, they'll probably stand themselves in good stead uh, against the fraud challenge. I would say that overall, no matter what the issue that you encounter, seek advice. And whether it's, it's something that you think is a minor concern or a major concern, there are people like us that are here to help and we can just talk through the issue with you can help a lot towards finding the right resolution, whether it's a minor issue or a major issue. Is it going to drive the business to the wall or is it a is it an inconvenience that you're dealing with, whether it's technology-driven or whether it's accounting-based or numbers-driven? Regardless, if it's sitting in the back of your mind that you need to do something and you're not quite sure how, then the best thing you can do is put up your hand for help. Thank you to our expert guests, Stan Gallo and Quinn Rinders. You're listening to In Business with BDO. Remember to subscribe and rate this podcast in your favourite podcast app and send us your comments and questions to podcast at bdo.com.au. I've been Jennifer Mary, and we'll see you next time when we explore another topic essential to the way we do business and live our modern lives.